BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Yesterday, Congress approved a sweeping $1.9 trillion coronavirus and economic relief package that President Biden is scheduled to sign tomorrow. A big chunk of money will go to California cities like Los Angeles, which expects to receive about $1.3 billion. Mayor Eric Garcetti says it will be put to good use to help address the city's problems. And now we can do things to pilot a basic income and see that nationally as well as pilot that here aggressively locally. Deliver life-saving mental health services and unarmed response as we reimagine public safety. Critical housing assistance that will pay off and cancel rent for renters and help the mortgages be paid for landlords. We can buoy good-paying jobs in our travel and tourism industry, attract people to come back to Los Angeles, fund critical infrastructure projects, extend childcare benefits, and push forward in the fight against homelessness, which was also included here, something we lobbied very hard for. And hundreds of millions of dollars more of the federal stimulus package will be going to the San Diego area. With more on that, here's KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman. This relief package will preserve jobs, avoid salary cuts, and ensure employees will continue to provide vital services San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria says the city alone is expecting around $300 million in federal aid. It seems much more likely that we will not have to close a $150, $200 million budget deficit, but instead we'll be able to look at preserving services during this recession and potentially providing additional relief. Gloria is hoping to spend some of that money to keep essential services that have been stretched thin running, like trash pickup. We can build back better than we were before, and that will be our goal. San Diego County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher says the stimulus package will also add another $30 million into the county's small business relief grant fund. I think now we'll have a different series of initiatives that will be more geared toward recovery from COVID than response. Uh, We're going to do a series of public workshops. Part of the $1.9 trillion federal package includes stimulus checks for Americans that President Biden says could start being sent out as early as this month. For the California Report, I'm Matt Hoffman in San Diego. And now let's turn to pandemic recovery and high school sports. Across California, student athletes are returning to training as public health officials give the green light for both outdoor and indoor sports to begin again if COVID protections are in place. I talked about what's happening with Rob Wygod, a commissioner with the California Interscholastic Federation, the governing body of high school sports in the state. My first question, is high school sports returning to something that looks like normal? Well, in some ways, yes. Uh, in other ways, not quite yet. Uh, for example, we're only allowed in certain sports like 
swimming or wrestling or track and field that have invitational events or multiple school events. Well, those aren't going to be allowed at this moment. They're, they're only going to be allowed to do dual meet kind of competition. And other things such as the requirement you can only have one contest in a day. So we have sports like baseball and softball, for example, that are part of their culture is to play double headers and play two games in one day against the same team. Right now that's not, not permitted. So uh, our tournaments, our multiple school events, double headers, you know, th- things that we're part of our culture, so to speak, are not quite all the way there yet. But we hope, again, to, to get to see that as we, uh, as we move forward. And as student-athletes return to competition after such a long time, are there other health and safety concerns that don't directly relate to the pandemic? I mean, I'm thinking of things like injuries that might be sustained on the field because they just haven't trained as much as usual. Is that a worry? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's a, a concern that we all have. That you know, We're trying to balance this downtime that unfortunately has been on on our student-athletes for so long and now uh, an opportunity to resume competition and to make sure they're prepared. I mean, constantly over over time there is training and preparation and, and weeks and months to get ready to play a season. And, and we have a very mixed bag around our section where we have some schools and, and school districts and private schools that have been conditioning and, and trying to keep their student-athletes engaged and involved throughout the time that the sports were shut down. And we have some schools and districts that really haven't done much of anything. And now to quickly be out there playing in contests, uh, we want to make sure that obviously our students are as safe and and healthy as they can be and protected as they can be. And so uh, certainly we are concerned about that. And we have to trust our professional educators, our coaches, our athletic directors, the people in charge of our student athletes to, to do everything they can do to make sure the students are protected. and and making sure that it is done right. And I wonder, do you hope that after such a long absence from sports and competition because of the pandemic, that student athletes and those around them think in different ways about the importance of athletics and what sports means to them beyond a particular game or even an entire playing season? Well, I think that's an excellent question, and it's something that I've thought about a lot. And what I really do hope and expect is that there will be a heightened appreciation for education-based athletics. It's a great thing for young people to be involved in. It's the classroom outside the building. It's where they learn the life lessons that they're going to use for, for the rest of their time you know, after they leave high school. So, you know, with high school athletics all these years and kind of always being there, mm-hmm. may have been a tendency to take it for granted. And now that it has been gone, hopefully people really will recognize how special it is, how unique it is, how important it is for young people. And when it comes back and as it comes back, that they really do appreciate and we always talk about we're in the business of making memories, and uh, that's, that's what we do with lifetime memories for these young people. So uh, this has been a very difficult time for them. We've never lost sight of trying to make sure that they are going to get the chance to come back. And uh, now that, that we are getting to that point, I really do hope that, that people have an appreciation for this that they may not have had while it was always there. Okay, Rob Wygod, Commissioner of the California Interscholastic Federation Southern Section. Thanks so much. Well, Saul, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you, and, and all the best to you as, as we go forward. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Just as it gets ready to restart in-person classroom instruction for students, San Francisco School Superintendent Vincent Matthews has announced he'll be retiring. The president of the San Francisco Board of Education says the board plans to work with Matthews on a transition plan. KQED's Vanessa Rancaño has more. Matthews has not said why he's leaving, only that he wants to give new school board members a chance to pick a successor who is aligned with their approach. Parent Cooper Marcus is critical of how Matthews has handled the school reopening process. I guess in some ways I'm grateful for this change uh, because now we have the opportunity to get the right leadership because clearly we didn't have it recently. Parent Amanda Confried is critical of Matthews, too, but wonders who will be willing to take over a district mired in controversy. I'd like to see this as an opportunity, and yet I don't know what kind of leader would step into the situation we have in San Francisco right now. I'm just very, very worried. The president of the San Francisco Teachers Union also recently announced she won't seek re-election after her term ends this summer. For the California Report, I'm Vanessa Rancaño. And even as the school superintendent announces his retirement, there's a push to change how members of the San Francisco School Board are selected. It's part of a wider national debate over how members of school boards should get their jobs. With more, here's KQED's Guy Maserati. Elementary school kids in San Francisco could be back in classrooms in April, but parent Jennifer Butterfoss says she won't be forgiving the school board for spending months on issues not related to reopening. The disastrous effects of this current board is going to be felt by our city for generations to come. This week, Butterfoss announced a ballot measure campaign to give city officials, not voters, the power to pick school board members in the future. It's clear that our current system is failing. By and large, frustrated parents in California argued that their elected boards are prioritizing the safety of teachers over the well-being of students, and that perceived imbalance can be traced back half a century. I think the influence of uh, the California Teachers Association on local school board elections has increased uh, over the years. Gary Hart, the former California Secretary of Education, says before the 1970s, it was a lot easier for school boards to tax local citizens and raise money for local education. So business-friendly candidates naturally pursued seats on the board to balance those in favor of more taxes and spending. But in the 70s, a series of court decisions and ballot measures moved school spending power to the state legislature. So school boards no longer had much overall control of their school budgets. Once Sacramento took over school spending, Hart says more moderate local leaders stopped paying attention to the school board. As a result of that, I think uh, there was a diminishment of civic leaders serving on school boards. 
Supporters of school board reform say reopenings have happened faster in New York and Chicago, where the mayor happens to control the board. But Troy Flint with the California School Boards Association says it's a bad idea to appoint school board members. He says less democracy will mean less accountability. There's nobody who regular members of the public have access to uh, the way they do uh, to school board members. And in recent years, voters have actually opted for more control of school boards, moving to elect members by geographic area in districts like San Diego. Larry Tramatola, a political strategist known for his work on school issues, says ultimately voters have conflicting feelings. People would like to have the school board stuff be more competent and represent people. On the other hand, they like that their vote matters more in a district election. Where school board members are elected by basically small neighborhoods. So it's often difficult to find quality people, experienced, knowledgeable, to run for these seats. But Tramatola says it's no guarantee a switch to appointments will lead to any more qualified candidates raising their hand. For the California Report, I'm Guy Marzarati. Governor Gavin Newsom has confirmed that Los Angeles County will move out of the state's most restrictive purple tier by tomorrow when the state is expected to reach its goal of administering 2 million COVID-19 vaccine doses in hard-hit communities. That milestone will trigger changes to the state's blueprint for reopening, allowing counties to reopen faster. Here's L.A. County Public Health Director Barbara Ferrer. We are working uh, with the Board of Supervisors and all of our sectors to plan for uh, what will be a sensible and safe reopening as permitted uh, by the state, but as appropriate for our county. L.A. County is expected to release its operating guidelines for businesses later today, but it's still unclear if officials will allow restaurants to reopen for indoor dining at 25 percent capacity. Two supervisors, Janice Hahn and Catherine Barger, want the county to align itself with state guidelines to avoid any confusion. And on Monday, millions more Californians will become eligible to get the free COVID-19 vaccine. As KPCC's Jackie Fortier reports, that includes people with developmental disabilities. For months, proving eligibility at vaccine sites has been a struggle. People who qualify often have to track down the necessary paperwork on their own. The state is trying to change that. It's requiring California's regional centers, those are nonprofits that help people with disabilities, to send their clients personalized letters they can use to prove their eligibility. Regional centers are also being directed to reach out to their clients online, by phone, or in person to give them information on how to make an appointment, where to get vaccinated, and to answer any other questions they might have. Starting Monday, the state will also prioritize people who are immunocompromised with specific conditions like cancer or heart disease, but it hasn't said what documentation they'll need to show. For the California Report, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. Support for the California Report comes from Water Heaters Only, specializing in the repair and replacement of water heaters since 1968, licensed and insured, open 24 hours a day every day. Learn more at waterheatersonly.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone, everywhere, and College Futures Foundation, supporting KQED special broadcasts from college campuses and other higher education reporting. Learn more at collegefutures.org. 
And that is the California Report for Thursday, March 11th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in L.A. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures. Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.